This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. It's Overdue, a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. I like this energy that we're bringing into 2021. Trying to correct for the terrible energy that's out there already. I am bringing my (laughs) own style. Okay, well, so let's talk about 2021, but not in like a current event sense. You know what's really going to grind my gears about 2021? Please. Is in 2020, I got used to looking at old dates and being able to do real fast, like real efficient math about how many years ago it was. Uh-huh. Like we are talking about the book, the obelisk gate by NK Jemison, which is the second book in the broken earth trilogy. Yes. And we read the first book in the broken earth trilogy, which was called the fifth season uh-huh. in 2018. And so just now, as I was prepping to get on the call, I was like, Oh yeah, two years ago. No, it's three years ago. <laughs> no. Yes, the change. I saw a thing on Twitter.com where someone said I was buying alcohol and they barely looked at my ID and the person said, oh, well, I saw the one at the beginning and I know you're good. Mm. Mm. Yeah, at the, I mean, the Acme, they just turn it over and scan it. Yeah, that's like a whole, so. well, that kind of ruins that joke. But it's, I mean, I, and then like, we're the, all old now. At the beer store closer to my house, they don't cart me. They just nod. Cool yeah, choice. Which I think is, I think it's about their lax carding practices and not about how I look right now. Welcome to our book I podcast. I choose to believe that. Here in the year 2021, we are glad that you are here listening to us and hanging out with us because um, it's better than you not listening to us, I suppose. Yeah. And we are just, you know, it's good to have a place on the internet where you can go where no one is fomenting anything against anybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good point. I just, I feel like we don't foment a lot. No, I don't think we do. We might ferment a lot. I, we ferment some. I feel like we've, we probably ever fomented, but it's not, it's not one of our core competencies. No, 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 no. Um, but yeah. So as Andrew said earlier, um, for this episode, we'll be talking about Jemison's The Obelisk Gate. I read the fifth season, as Andrew said, back in 2018. I was re-listening that episode, talking about how jazzed I was to read this book, and I waited three years. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> it happens. Um, I also gave a very... And you warned me about this before I re-listened to the episode, but I gave a very, a, an impassioned speech in favor of both of us reading yeah. this because I wanted to read it, but... In the intervening three years, some things have happened to me that have given me less time <laughs> to do that kind of stuff than I did before. So yes. I'm happy for you to have read this and to tell me about it. Yeah, which is how our podcast works. I've never read this book before. Um, sometimes the other person has, but Andrew has not read this one. And I'm going to talk to him a little bit about it. And then you, the listener, some of you are very excited for us to talk about this book. And I hope you're cool with what I say. Who knows? Uh, but what do you recall or know about N.K. Jemison, Andrew? 
Um, so N.K. Jemison was uh, born in 1972. She's best best known, I think, for the Broken Earth trilogy. Yeah. Um, a series which came out in the, the three books, 2015, 2016, 2017. Each of those books won the Hugo Award for Best Novel yeah. the year it came out, which makes her the first author to ever win the prize three years running for three books in a trilogy. Hmm. Which is just, it's wild to even have that be possible. Yeah. Like, like I would have been impressed if she just ha- had three books out in three years. Yes. <laughs> she didn't have to go winning all the, like sci-fi's most prestigious award in the meantime, you know, but she did. Uh, she's also written the inheritance trilogy in 2010, 2011, the dream blood duology in Ooh. 2012. People should do more duology. I love a duology. You know why? Cause just two books. You only got to read two, two. books. <laughs> Just two books. And The City We Became in uh, March of 2020, yeah. which is the first in a, it's an urban sci-fi series about cities that, quote, become sentient through human avatars, which sounds weird and rad. Yeah, I saw the the tagline of like, the avatar of New York is in a coma, and so all the boroughs get their own avatars, and I was like, <laughs> dang, we got to come back to this book. <laughs> Do you think Jersey City... Probably not, huh? No. <laughs> they you... probably don't get an avatar. <laughs> well, uh... He probably like wants to... Because he's not... He is geographically... And it, the avatar for Jersey City would be like a young, straight, white, pr- urban professional. Do you think that the cake boss is the avatar for Hoboken? Mm, I do definitely think that. What a shame for Hoboken. <laughs> What a shame for Hoboken. Eh, Hoboken. Hoboken's not that great. They're, they're well matched to each other. Um, we t- Okay, we talked about a bibliography. I found an interview where she said that um, this was an Orbit Books interview on YouTube. She said she almost quit writing this trilogy and it took like her editor um, kind of being like, hey, you no, know, you got this. You're good. She almost scrapped it and turned it into one book, which put a pin in that idea as we talk about this as a middle of a trilogy entry. Yeah. I've done a lot of thinking on middle books of trilogies, which we've read a few of how she must've been doubting that for like 45 minutes though. Cause she still did write two more books <laughs> yeah. in two years. I think it was in the, I, there's not a lot of room for time to like, not think that you're going to write another one. I reckon she didn't give a timeline when she made that comment. I bet it was before she even started the first book. I bet it. Cause she has also Maybe. made a lot of comments about how much, like she calls it stone lore that she has like stone lore. lore about this universe that she's created. Um, and she's also she's a very uh well informed like she she speaks really uh interestingly about the genre like she just is very conversant in genre tropes and will talk i don't know i've heard her call this book a secondary world post apocalyptic sci-fi science fantasy and i'm like all right you you just you just make it whatever you want, but you know, all like the somebody way. talking about metal genres <laughs> that's, at this point. That's me adding hashtags to an Instagram post to make sure enough people see it is what that is. <laughs> um, I did. So this series SEO, that's what it's for. That's SEO. what it is. Um, this series was also optioned for a television show through TNT like three or four years ago. Ooh. Don't know where that is. Characters welcome. I don't think that's TNT. No, but. that's. <laughs> 
TNT is we know drama. TBS is characters. Oh, they do know drama. That's that's it's a good fit then. Uh huh. I mean, so when I search TNT slogan now here in January of 2021, it says that the motto is just boom. Period. No. So, you know, take that for what it is. There was but, also uh, a press yeah. release about this series being adapted by a tabletop game company called Green Ronin, um, who's know. done some work on The Expanse and Dragon Age. From a press release, N.K. Jemison said, I've heard from many of my readers that they're fascinated enough by the world of the Broken Earth that they'd like to visit it. Nobody wants to live there, though. And now they've, they'll get their <laughs> chance. Um and I checked their website. They haven't published anything about it yet. But I have seen her streaming on Twitch lately. She was playing like Journey and Resident Evil Man. and Mass Effect. You can just go find NK Jemison on Twitch. She's playing games. She's super if, rad. If any, if this is an interesting experiment because I feel I feel like this is going to be our only chance as society to prove like the longer a worldwide pandemic lasts, the more people just become Twitch streamers. <laughs> it's true. Everybody's doing we've, it. We've been talking about it. Uh-huh. Maybe we'll get there. I don't know what to do with that, but we, we we're not going to just sit and read a book though, but who knows. Um we might just sit quietly and read. Actually, that might okay. Put that put, put a bookmark in. TM TM TM. TM TM TM. What else? What else? Before we take our first our first and only break. There's only one break this episode. I don't know why I said it first. Um I do want to do like a real quick uh, yo, here's what the first book was. So if you haven't read the fifth season, I would at least encourage you to go back and listen to our episode, episode 285, I think it is. I'll put, I'll make sure that there's a link in the episode description. Um, or go read it and whatever, I'm going to spoil some stuff. Um, takes place on a supercontinent called The Stillness. Um, it's called Broken Earth Series, I guess it's on Earth, who knows. Um, every few hundred years, there's something called a fifth season, which is, they refer to it as a season colloquially, uh, where, yeah, I, you know, there's a you in the end of that you word. Got, you got it out. I mean, I knew it. I knew the word that you meant. I'm, you caught my eye roll on camera, uh-huh. which is, <laughs> uh, and a fifth season. I didn't think you were going to be paying that much attention. Is sort of a, a localized apocalypse. Um, and it, you know, it creates this ongoing world where there's not as much of an incentive to like advance civilization like it's like every few hundred years we're gonna have to hunker down it's gonna suck yeah as i i I, we were i was listening to the first episode we did and and it sounds kind of like why make my bed i'm just gonna get in it and mess it up again except for society yes correct (laughs) um and the first book centers around what you think originally are three women um, Cyanite, Demaya, and uh, Essen. They are all very talented origins who are movers and shapers of rock and tectonic activity. They can, uh, you know, use their magic, as it were, to, to control the earth. And they are an oppressed caste within a society that already has a caste system. They are at the low, lowest uh, rung on the ladder. Because everybody blames them for what happens, even though also the ruling class needs them to like make earthquakes less bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of that book, after Essun or Cyanite, actually our main character for most of the book, um, you know, she lives, she loves, she loses, 
she some, lives, she laughs, she loves. Some apocalypse stuff goes down with her lover slash mentor named Alabaster, and they are separated. She goes undercover as this woman, Asun, and he dies, maybe? Uh, no, because he turns out that he causes one of the apocalypses, the current fifth season. They are reunited at the end of the book as she moves into this underground city called Kastrima, and he's like, hey, long time no see. Also, you ever heard of a moon? And she's like, what are you talking about? A- end of book. <laughs> Wait, rem- so remind me, so the- these fifth seasons come about at sort of random intervals, but they do come around like consistently. But then you reference that it was like caused by a guy doing something. Yes. So are they just like... How inevitable are they, I guess? That's a great question. Um, okay, they, I didn't know if you would know the answer to it or not. I think that they are pretty inevitable, though they can be caused. So the the Earth that they live on, the planet that they live on, is incredibly seismologically active. Nice. Um, it is, How's that one? <laughs> it is a real mess. The Earth is angry. Father Earth, they call him, is real mad all the time. And... They need the uh, these origins to help quell earthquakes and prevent it from getting too bad. But then every once in a while, it gets really bad. What the book, as far as I can tell, doesn't really imply is that previous ones have been caused by folks like Alabaster. I don't think that's the case. Um, but Alabaster's on this kick where he's like, listen... What if we caused the big one <laughs> and we could maybe sort of the this is not a, a new trope of any kind, but it's sort of a break the cycle trope like um, which is interesting considering that the world starts broken in this universe. But like, can we stop this cycle of Earth violence um, and stopping the cycle of violence is a thematic thing throughout the book. So, um, yeah, the, this book opens with kind of like we're starting Cormac McCarthy's road, like the ashes in the sky, <laughs> stuff is going down. It's clearly caused by Alabaster. We know that now, and now we're going to follow our characters into the next part of the story. Okay. Um, so let's take a quick break, and then we'll get into the Obelisk Gate proper. Sounds great. Cool, thanks. Craig, you like books, right? I'm here, aren't I? <laughs> That's true, you are. Well, if you like books and you like podcasts, we have good news for you. Uh, we would like to tell you about Broccoli Book Club. It's a first-of-its-kind podcast, exploring works from some of the most savvy and talented authors on topics ranging from technology to postpartum to history. Um, I've listened to uh, what is up. This podcast like just started this month, but it's a... If you like to try and read along with us, but we are throwing too many books at you, um, it, it's it, it's a chance to read like one book at a more leisurely pace and absorb all kinds of different facts and perspectives about it. So uh, they release two episodes a month. Uh, the first one is a, uh, a discussion uh, with the host, Diora Chajanova, and a couple of guests about a book that they've chosen. And then two weeks later... Uh, she releases a an interview with her and the author, so they talk about it again. Cool. 
Um, I'm not sure. There are probably some of our the episodes of our show where I wouldn't want <laughs> I wouldn't want to have the author on after. But this it sounds like a really neat idea. So um, yeah, it's focused on uh, learning and exploring new topics and you know the the issues of the day. Um, they're available on Apple Podcasts and wherever else you get your podcasts. Um, this Broccoli Book Club new episodes come out biweekly on Thursdays. Uh, go check it out. Okie dokie, welcome to the second book of the Broken Earth Trilogy, The Obelisk Gate. Gate's open, come on in. So what's this, ob- is the Obelisk Gate like one of the uh, the, the Philip Pullman like MacGuffins? Is it, do they have to like build a gate or find a gate or is it like a metaphorical gate that exists inside all of us? Like what's the, what's the deal with this gate? <laughs> there is definitely... Uh, a thing that they have to put together. So folk, for folks who read the first book, you might remember that there are these things called obelisks. Many of them hover in the sky, scattered around the earth. I think at some point in this book, they are numbered at like 216, though maybe there's a little bit more, maybe there's a little less, who knows? And one of the stone monsters, the stone eaters, they're not monsters, they're people too, Uh mm-hmm. They come out of one earlier in in the fifth season, but the there's a thing that characters want to happen in this book that involves the moon, and to make it happen, someone of our main character Essun's uh or origenical or her uh, her her talent for orogeny or earth magic, um. She will need to construct the obelisk gate, uh, whatever that means, and she doesn't even know what it means. So she has to make an obelisk gate to do some stuff to the moon. Yeah, yeah. And she doesn't really have all the information she needs ever, and that's kind of a hallmark of this series is like characters kind of having a lot of abilities, but their abilities outstrip their knowledge up until the exact moment that they need to use it sometimes. Sure. Um, but yeah, the, this is a bridge book to the third book in the trilogy where it's very clear that we are going to solve the problem of the fact that there's no moon on this planet. (laughs) Uh, so a little ways into this novel, I'll go back and talk a little bit about how it starts, but a little ways in our main character Essen, um, or Asun has, reunited with this guy alabaster um who is you know a really powerful earth mage or origin and they had a family in the previous book that fell apart as i talked about mm-hmm. and he's like he is turning to stone and like disappearing now because Whoa, he that's did, like a couple different tropes. Yes. <laughs> he did some sick magic in the first book, and now parts of his body are turning to stone. And also, uh, he has a stone eater companion who appears to be eating some of him. So he's that must like be tough. Do you, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's good. It's cool that they're still friends. Yeah. That's because it seems like it would get uncomfortable. <laughs> but, 
conversation wise. Yeah, his stone eater friend Antimony hangs out with him all the time, and she's like taking care of him, but also helping him disappear as he becomes more stone. I guess if part of, like if my fingers were turning to stone or something, and I couldn't like move them or do anything with them, and they were just dead weight, I guess I would. Yeah, I mean it's better than just throwing them out. Like at least somebody's getting something so, out of them. Somebody's gonna make use out of this. One man's stone is another man's lunch. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, exactly. That's exactly the situation you've described. That's that's an idiom that they use in this book. No. Um, And she is like, listen, what's the deal? He's like, I need you to learn how to summon an obelisk, which is a thing that they start learning how to do, which is if you're really good at earth magic, you can make one of these obelisks come closer to you. They, They hover in the sky. They can come near, hang out with you. And then you can kind of amplify your own power through them i'm not sure if i've encountered an analog to this in other fantasy books or we love to go to super nintendo rpgs like i don't know if there is a good analog to like it's like a channeling device Mm -hmm. for making their earth magic more powerful yeah i mean i'm i go to Wheel of Time. Is there something in Wheel of Time like that? Yeah, there there's specific um objects that, you know, the, the making of them has been lost. So there's yeah. a, it, it, there's a scarcity situation. There's a finite number of them, but you focus through them and it helps you channel more power than you normally could like unaided. But it also comes with the risk because you can like burn yourself out if you use too much. Okay, of it. perfect. So, so yeah, yeah. So like if you use these, um, these obelisks to amplify your power, you might run the risk of turning into stone. Nobody really knows why that happens, but it can happen if you're, if you're not careful. Yeah. It's, 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 it, that's a, so if you want to bring it back to super Nintendo RPGs, like it is pretty common, for there to be super strong attacks that then have some undesirable oh, secondary effects. Oh, sure, yeah. You're more vulnerable yeah. to damage. You have to wait an extra turn, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alabaster's like, hey, I need you to do this um, so that you can learn to use more obelisks and actually use the obelisk gate, which he never properly explains to her because he's dying and can only talk to her for 30 minutes at a time. Um, (laughs) And that's apparently how he caused what in this book is referred to as the rift, which is the current, the beginning of the current fifth season that they're in, where he ripped a, a big old hole in the continent, which destroyed the fulcrum, which was a place where the, Origines were being trained and kept and, and oppressed. And he has broken the earth, it sounds like. He has like. literally broken the earth, yes. And um he's like, hey, the earth is really mad at us. Father Earth hates <laughs> us mm-hmm. because the moon is gone and it's our fault. And I don't really have more details than that, but I can tell you that maybe we bring the moon back, we can fix things. This is just a wild sentence that you're saying. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of <laughs> nuts. Um, and she's like, well, that's cool. I'm just learning about the moon now. Never heard of mm-hmm. it, but that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, after the climactic events of the first book, he was teleported to where all the stone eaters live, which is on the other side of the planet. Remember when we were reading Dante's Inferno? And at yes. the end, we went through Oh, Satan's do I remember. But... And we mm-hmm. ended up in an upside down ocean and there was the island of purgatory. Yeah. Only way out is through the butt. Yeah. Specifically. That's 
kind of what <laughs> happened to Alabaster, where mm-hmm. the Stone Eater took him for his own safety to like the world of the Stone Eaters, which is on the other side of the Earth. Um, and it's some sort of dead civilization, you know, construction. No one really understands it. Uh, and there's a big hole. There's a gaping hole that goes to the Earth's core. He did go in there, but he couldn't really bring himself to say what he saw, just that it was bad and that the Earth is mad at everyone. And his theory is, let's bring the moon back into a stable orbit. It's in a it's in a bad elliptical orbit, a long elliptical orbit, which is so the moon is out there. It's just kind of out of pocket. Yes, yes, <laughs> and it's gonna okay. it's gonna come by again soon, and we need to catch it, and we need to put it back in place. And Essen's like, "You need me to catch the moon," uh, which is def- uh, a direct quote, except she curses while she says it too. Okay, so it's like a it's like it's a wonderful life. A little bit thing going on. Yes, got lasso the moon. She does have to lasso the moon. It's true. <laughs> um, and she also learns from Alabaster that the Stone Eaters they have a whole society. Um, she has her own Stone Eater named Hoa, who follows her around, who is also the narrator of the book. He, the, the entire book is written as if he is telling this story to Asun herself. Mm-hmm. So you might recall from the first book, there were some passages that were in the second person that were all about yes. Asun. Mm-hmm. Um, that continues in this book, but there are also chapters from the perspective, or not from the perspective, but about her daughter, Nasun, and her adventures that... Hoa has somehow learned about and he is telling Asun about them. You don't know when this conversation might be happening. I reckon it's in the third book. Um, anything that I say where you're like, what does that really mean? And if I don't have an answer, it's probably going to be in the next book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let me know when you want to talk about second books. Of, yes. It sounds like maybe we want to get through. Just some big picture stuff. stuff. First. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the the like learning your magic arc of this one like we've established in the first book that Asun is already super powerful um and alabaster who is dying is like all right you're the only one left that could potentially take control of the obelisks and use the power to catch the moon and i think that will end the cycle of the seasons and then she also learns that maybe there are some stone eaters who used to be people Maybe used mm-hmm. to be humans. Maybe used to be human people. Unclear, yes, okay. and maybe they don't want to stabilize the moon. Maybe they want the moon to come crashing into Earth and get rid mm. of all the humans, and they can just live on Earth as as Earth intended. So they want to do a Majora's mask. They do want to do a Majora's mask. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I was sorry for all the video game references in the first one, and I continue to be sorry. But it, even though, I mean, if we were talking about the first one, I have watched another thing I've done in the last three years is watch Avatar: The Last Airbender. Oh, so I have a different sure. Framework for how some of this magic, magic can work. Yep. Sure, sure, sure. But in terms of like tropes and plot devices, <laughs> still going to be mostly video games from 15 to 25 years ago. Um, so that's the like the stakes of the world and all of the moon stuff 
is going to be in the next book. And it's very clear during my entire experience reading this book, yo, just hang in there. Like that's coming mm-hmm. next week or whatever it is. Um, if you're like watching a television show and you're like, well, I'm not seeing my favorite character on this show. I'm like, well, he's going to show up next week. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when you get to the fireworks factory. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then as I alluded to the other... So, okay, so let me just quickly state that Asun spends almost the entirety of the book in this community, or Kam, as it's referred to, Kastrima, which is this, like, crystal geode underground where people have carved out a living... It, you know, for another frame of reference, it's sort of like the underground uh, city in The Matrix, mm-hmm. um, but it's carved out of this giant, like, almost living crystal that has like it does air conditioning and hmm. it can nice. heat and cool the water it has some special things that nobody really understands why it's happening but it only does them when there are origins living in the community and if folks remember from the first book like people don't want origins in their town because they're so dangerous because if they react emotionally to a situation they might just inadvertently kill people Sure. So they get ripped away from their communities. People pretend not to be them or try to hide their abilities. Um, it's a huge part of the trauma of Asun's lived experience before this book. So mm-hmm. the fact that she is now in a community that is run by a woman, uh, Yika, who is a an origin herself, and that there are other people living openly as origins in this community is really like different for her and gives her a stake in its survival and of Mm -hmm. course it's an apocalypse now we're in the road this ash is in the sky there's bandits on the roads um and they gotta hunker down and live together so that's like her stake in this and for a character that spent the entire first book like ranging across the continent going on some adventures it was interesting to have this one be about her like deciding to to live in and defend the town that's just i know some i i know fantasy books are ever like we are just going to be in this community or this village but usually for like a hero's journey like they literally go on a hero's journey and so it was interesting to like hang out in one place and have a character invest in a place certainly someone who's not used to that yeah, I think that's a like a, an outsider comes to town and and becomes part of the community through helping the town through some kind of yeah battle or other that's trauma. True. Is it? I feel like it's more frequently like a plot of a Star Trek episode. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, that's that's an identifiable thing. Too. There's even a fun little bit where she is like getting into it and kind of she's been invited onto the town council because the leader uh, Yika is really smart. She is constantly attracting new people to this com. And yeah, you got to, you know, you got to run for local elections. They're very important. Yes. And she she uh, puts uh, Asun and other newcomers like on this council and gets them involved. And there's a bit where it's like, man, she actually kind of like likes doing the Pawnee like town hall stuff where they're like <laughs> there's an old guy complaining about the temperature of the water and there's someone who is mad at their pottery apprentices. And because she's someone who has never settled down and never felt at home anywhere, there's like 
something really lovely about being able to settle into like a low key civic life, even if like yeah. it's still an apocalypse and like they got to make it. But the problems <laughs> are smaller um, mm-hmm. and that that's part of the stake there. So then the other major plot line that I alluded to is the Nasun plot line. Nasun is Esun's daughter um, from when she went under well not undercover but basically when she put herself in witness protection as a new person and created a new life she had two kids um her husband jija found out that their son was an origin he killed him cool rad i mean you know we've all got a lot going on yep. i guess and then uh, his daughter Nasun was there and was like, what's happening, dad? I can also do this. Please don't kill me. And he can't bring himself to do it. And so he kidnaps her and they run away. And that is Asun's like driving quest is to find her daughter coming into this book. And instead of that reuniting ever happening in this novel, we get Nasun going on an adventure, learning about her powers and learning about the world from the perspective of like a eight through 11 year old um, who can do really powerful earth magic. Like it's that <laughs> there is, I recognize this in there's like, you know, kind of classic anime tropes, but also I wonder if, is there anything like this, an airbender of like a powerful young magic user who like doesn't understand how powerful they are kind of thing. My um, my schema is Naruto, and I know no, that no, like no, no. <laughs> Th- that does not. I mean, everybody in in um, the Avatar series is pretty young, just from the the way that it jump. works. I I don't I don't think that's I I know exactly the the trope that you're talking about, like somebody with a lot of raw talent, but no like a discipline or like mastery yes. of the skill. Like that is obviously a trope. It's a, it's not so much a trope in Avatar because if you don't if you don't have mastery of the skill, then you just don't, you can't do you it. You can't do it. Sure. Most of the time. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's interesting. This book brings up the fact that the ruling classes on the stillness, um, including this group of people called guardians who may or may not have been given supernatural abilities by the literal earth. It's unclear, um, mm-hmm. to control the origins. They, uh, they have sort of bred the origins to be powerful and to use their power to kind of quell quakes and stuff. So when the book spends time talking about how good Nasun is at this, um, Shafa, who is uh, the guardian from the first book that we meet again in this one, he talks about the guardians like selectively making sure that origins get more powerful if they're going to get trained um, mm-hmm. as opposed to just kind of regular origins that uh soon is dealing with in her life in this calm where people are just trying to get by. Um, so that's, that's the two main threads of this book and the biggest difference. If someone read the first one and they're like, Oh dang, that part where all the three people were the same person. That was kind of cool. Uh, mm-hmm. that does not happen in this book because you can't do that trick again. Like once that's out of the bottle, you can't do it. Well, you you can't do that trick again. And also if you were, if you're going to try and do that trick across three books, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't work as well. I don't think. Not at all. No, no, no. No. The, um, yeah. The, the biggest, like, 
the benefit of having your two main characters be Nasun and Esun here is Nasun is traveling with her father. Her father is abusive to her, but she but she does love him and he was kinder to her than her mother was. And she doesn't have full access to Esun's life experience and doesn't understand why Esun like trained her to use earth magic just enough to tell her how to keep it under control, which did involve this like ritual violence of breaking her hand and like keeping her in pain, but keeping her from using her magic at the same time so that she doesn't accidentally Mm -hmm. kill people. Mm -hmm. And so Nasun grows up with this real resentment of her mother because she has no access to who her mother is as a person. And of course, Esun has like had to create distance between herself and her daughter for their, for each of their own protection. Um, And that relationship is like the core. It's interesting that it's the core of the novel, even though in the present tense of the novel, they spend no time together. Um, It's mostly through memories that Nasun is having about her relationship with her mom. Okay. Um, And that is the, like, you have traded the cleverness of the first novel and the inherent suspense of how are these three perspectives going to relate to these are two characters who have a clear relationship and she's going to jump back and forth between them. You might get some similar resonances to what they're learning about the world around them. And then you end the book going, well, I guess they're going to meet up. They're going to. What's are they on opposite sides of the moon conflict, which they are a little bit. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sounds like, so I was reading, um, Goodreads reviews. Three star Goodreads reviews. Um, and just, I don't, I don't have a lot to quote just like the gist of, of things. Um, uh, Patrick says that this book has quote, second book syndrome, (laughs) Um, and there are a lot of, there were quite a few book, there were quite a few reviews complaining about, um, like info dumps, particularly from Essen's point of view. And then, uh, just talking about how a lot of this really feels like set up for a third book, which it's, it's from, from how you are describing it to me, especially with that, like sort of cliffhangery thing. It, it does sound like it's, it's mostly build up without, like it doesn't it doesn't have the it clearly doesn't have the like the engaging surprising like oh everybody's the same person twist it does not no it does not and it sounds like it doesn't have as clear cut a like self-contained story either i don't know like how do you how do yeah. you feel about that so there there are two the two arcs for each of these characters there is a like a beginning and an end to their stories as contained but it it all does feel in service of the next book. So Nasun's story is, you know, young girl sits out with her father. He takes her to this place called found moon that he has heard. It's sort of, I don't know, reminded me of some X-Men stories where it's like, I've heard that they can cure you of what makes you different. And mm-hmm. actually it's just a place where they make her really good at what, at why she's different. Um, okay. It is actually like a new fulcrum being run by Shafa where he is training uh, these origin kids um, for the same purpose that he used to train them for. And he, you know, learns that this is Esun's daughter. He kind of figures that out. And so now he's very invested in her because he used to be Esun's guardian. And it that arc is about uh, Nasun 
choosing who her father is going to be. Basically, is she going to be loyal to this um, abusive man who cannot love her for who she is? Or is she going to be, uh, is she going to love this like new guardian who is still kind of mean to her and pushes her, but does seem to care for her and at least is honest about what and who and like how she has to live her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it ends it over the course of that arc. She goes from being mad at her mother for like never loving her to being mad at her mother for not having her with someone who could deal with the fact that she's an origin. It's like a really, it's a really powerful realization that she comes to as her dad is like basically getting ready to kill her at the end of the book. Um, and she kills him. She has to defend herself, but she is like, she can turn entire cities to stone, which is not a thing that anybody could do the first book. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is her uncovering this world building thing that the second book is doing where, yo, it's not just earth magic, Andrew. It's not just orogeny. There's another mm-hmm. layer that is just really about like manipulating what you and I would understand as like the atomic bonds within all of the particles that make us up. Okay. All right. There are some all Star right. Wars novels. I don't I don't want to use the I don't want to use the M word, but midichlorians <laughs> <laughs> No, it actually are a thing to be shied away from. It reminds me of some EU novels where uh like there are some medical Jedi who like use the force to do sick surgeries and stuff. Like they're not just pushing trash cans around. They're doing really pres- they're like manipulating the very fabric of existence okay and nasun is so talented innately that she starts to perceive another layer of this ability which is going to be very important if she's going to be the one to deal with the moon as the, as some stone eaters hope and Esun and alabaster are also talking about this and they they <laughs> alabaster has a line where he's like P- the older sieves had a line for this it's called magic. And she's like, huh, that's weird. <laughs> magic. Which is really what? kind of funny on, on Jemison's part. But uh Esun, well, especially because she's participating in the sci-fi book <laughs> yes. trope of like making regular words slightly shorter or weirder to highlight that we're not in Kansas anymore. Exactly. Like, com- you keep saying comms, I'm like, oh geez. I know. Yeah, it's got it's some... just communities. Yeah, well, you know, there's slang in this world. Mm-hmm. Um they don't just uh, sense something, Andrew. They sess it, S-E-S-S, because that is short for the organ at the base of your brain that allows you to sense seismic activity. Cool, cool, cool. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, and Essen and Alabaster are getting to the heart of the matter of learning that it's not just about moving rocks. There's actually a greater power that connects everything, I was watching a YouTube essay about this book. Hmm. Tell me more about this YouTube essay. Um, by Adriana, Perpetual Pages on YouTube, who did it's a pretty good few minutes on this book and like cycles of abuse, cycles of oppression, and like decolonization and things like that, where the orogeny the, the origins, excuse me, are like conditioned to think of themselves as tied to the earth and as a problem 
and not and that none of their powers can actually help the world. All they do is break the world and cause pain. Mm-hmm. And what Alabaster and Asun are figuring out and what Nasun is figuring out on her own is that actually there's a deeper power that is available to to them that is actually tied to literally anything that's been alive or as Esun puts it like anything that used to be alive but then after thousands of years got crushed into rocks and that's why also we can move rocks is basically what she <laughs> says. And so there's this kind of like democratization and um opening up of like who is connected to this magic as opposed to it just being this very specific realm that kind of shatters the the notion that anyone should be punished for this thing or or things like that or mm-hmm. that their abilities are bad rather than good um and that is like i don't know it's one of the bigger things that this book is trying to accomplish in terms of expanding on the on the size of the world from the first book i was surprised Mm -hmm. that there was no like there's no evil empire in this book there's no there was a real strong sense as i remember in the first book of like the fulcrum that was oppressing these origins and their abilities and putting them to use yeah right and in this it's like no we all just gotta make it in this apocalypse and there's this city that got too big for its bridges and now it's going to conquer the crystal town and i guess we got to save the crystal town but it's really it's about saving the moon to make father earth not mad anymore <laughs> and like jemison has just kind of like widened the scope of what is both magically possible in this world and what is at stake in this world mm-hmm. um but to your point it can't close the loop on that in this narrative. Um, Nasun's narrative only works if at the end of it, in the scope of this novel, if at the end of it, she is now capable of doing things that can affect the larger, you know, world like chess pieces on it, you know, moving around. Um, Mm -hmm. As soon's plot is like the last third of the book for her is kind of like a, the last part of red wall or the battle of Helm's deep, where they are like defending this community from an invading force. Mm-hmm. She does learn how to network, Andrew. She sets up a mesh network of <laughs> orogeny. Okay. Where she kind of learns from the from Yika, who runs uh, this community, that there's a way to do this magic that involves kind of like linking everyone who can do it at once. And just kind of drawing on their power to to make something happen. And it's like, I don't know, it's it doesn't quite have the like we're stronger together vibe, mm-hmm. but there is a oh, we can do this differently than the way I was taught at the like evil wizard school. <laughs> and also, oh wow, networking. I can create a network of the obelisks that float around the sky, and that's what the obelisk gate is. Mm-hmm. So the end of the book is her like fully realizing her power, understanding the concepts of how to link these different things. Um, it is kind of this is I don't know other series how well other series have handled this, but it does 
Jemison is pretty clear that like this power can always get out of control and could maybe always be bad. And the mm-hmm. origins never really feel fully in control of what they're doing. And also like, I don't know, Essun t- turns an entire city of people into magic rock statues. And like that sucks. Like those people that are feels, gone. That feels like too much. That feels like too much. But at the time it seemed like enough. I don't know. Mm-hmm. She it, clearly it is a a choice. I don't know. She made she made complicated moral choices in the first book too. So that's part of what these these books are about. Um but yeah, neither of these plot lines even though they have a distinct like climax and denouement within the book itself um they don't answer they're not meant to answer a bunch of questions they're meant to raise a bunch so that you are like yo there's a third book coming i'm gonna go read Uh it um and from what i've heard about the third book is like the sillier things like yo we gotta catch the moon like do pay off i think is from (laughs) what i've heard i would think that they would have to for this to be as well regarded as it is yes Um, is there anything else from some of the stuff you've read that might be worth responding to? I'm just like, I just read a bunch of stuff about, about middle books. People felt about like the middle entries in, in trilogies. Like there's a lot of stuff about this on, on for movies too. Um, some like pretty nuanced views, which I think describe what a good second entry looks like, which is, um, uh, this is a piece from the Omaha World Herald about the second movies in, in trilogies. The middle movie has the difficult dual task of continuing the story while setting the table for a grand finale. And yet a few number two movies have thrived in the middle, overshadowing what came before and raising the bar so high that the number three entry has trouble topping it. Um, this is from a, a, a post called What Makes a Good Trilogy on Medium.com, which I found mostly to be not there's a little facile but this about the pirates of the caribbean movies Ooh. i thought was was illustrative take the cliffhanger in dead man's chest it led directly into the third movie at world's end but this prevented dead man's chest from ending in a satisfying way stripping it of its own unique character at world's end felt like a sequel to dead man's chest because they were so closely linked but did dead man's chest feel like a sequel to pirates not really because they didn't have much to do with each other other than the characters oh sure and that that's a thing i feel like i've encountered before which is like the first book is a standalone and the second book starts a new thing that the third book yeah. has to that's sort of how star wars works a little bit like yeah there's so there i think there are a lot more if you're talking about movies there are a lot more planned trilogies than there used to be yeah yep, um yep. but uh deborah j ross writing on her blog is talking about just the 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 publishing industry and especially if you're like a, a lesser known author like a a, a mid-list author or something like that um she is she is writing about uh the author may leave specific elements unresolved open doors if you will when submitting a book in today's market uh an author might develop secondary characters or introduce problems not present in the initial volume in the second so she's talking about you do a book you do a book it's one book it's its own thing but you leave a couple like things in there that you could pick at yeah if the if it succeeds and the publisher comes back to you that makes like, sense you, you have not planned a trilogy but you have like 
left the world right left for enough more. like hooks in the world left that you could come back to it if you needed to and i think that happens a lot yeah in, in books like this is i think that's why entries two and three often feel like one unit mm. of storytelling mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in some ways where like the and this this came up i think in when we did hunger games this came up when we did the uh the golden compass yep, stuff yep, yep um it comes up a lot in the the series that we have read and it's why i think what folks who might who haven't read this book if folks haven't read this book and they're excited to dig into it which they should it's a cool book um they should expect a lot of table setting for a third book that they better be interested in reading. <laughs> and they should be like, if they want to take this book on its own terms, it's really about the, I think it's about parenting and the cycle of violence. And and not that those two are inherently linked, but it is about links in those things. Um, it is not, a coincidence that earth is referred to as father earth throughout this series. Yeah. And that father earth may or may not be mad that it's only child is gone. Um, the moon that is, and the relationships that Nasun has with her father and with Shafa and the, the relationship we do and don't see her have with Asun um, is really powerful stuff. It doesn't, open and close a fantasy plot but it does have an arc of like growth and understanding for an 8 to 11 year old over the course of a book which is pretty impressive Mm -hmm. um there's a moment early in the book that i really that really struck me um when she first sets out on the road well when the when her dad first sets out on the road with her and she is trying to apologize to him for never telling him about her magical abilities because her mom made her keep it quiet. And he hits her and knocks her out of the wagon. And the fallout from that moment is she realizes that, like, she... He is her father, but he's not her daddy anymore. He's not her dad. And she's, like, nine or something. Mm-hmm. And the line is, he is Jija now in her head. He will be Jija hereafter, forever, and never daddy again, except out loud when Nasun needs reins to steer him. And just that, like, coming into a mini adulthood of learning that, like, there are things you can say to your parents to get what you want, and there is a different relationship to your parents than when you absolutely needed everything from them to survive is just really fascinating and I I that's what I gravitated most to in the book was Nasun her relationship with with Jija her relationship with Shafa and the two of them wanting to like help each other and yeah there's this really touching embrace between Shafa and Nasun where Shafa's wondering if he should do what all guardians do, which is kill Origines, and she's wondering if she should remove the magic iron from his brain that gives him his supernatural powers, but if she did it, it would kill him because he would suddenly become old and die, and they're both wondering whether or not they could like do that to each other, even if they think it might be the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's just... it's. You know, Jemison knows what she's doing, man. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Sounds like. I mean, <laughs> yeah. she's pretty well regarded. Yeah. 
I've heard. And there's just there's cool word on the street. There's cool stuff in the Geode City that is like it's this socialist enclave where like one of the things they have to deal with in the Pawnee town hall stuff is that like someone started selling fans illicitly like apparently when there's a season on you're not allowed to engage in capitalist enterprise it's not allowed there's no market economies when it's an apocalypse doesn't sound bad to me (laughs) doesn't Uh, sound bad to me and just keep saying geode city and i just keep i don't know how to get it to geo cities but you need to know that i'm thinking oh i hear you i hear you um it that is just an interesting community the there's a payoff to a bunch of like they're called boil bugs. I won't spoil it, but there's like this magic evil apocalypse bug that just starts really being a stick in everybody's craw over the course of the book. <laughs> and I did not expect there to be a kind of Chekhov's boil bug at the end during mm-hmm. the big battle. But, you know, this book's full of surprises. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, don't introduce a weird bug unless you're going to use it for something later. It's true. It's true. It's that's, true. That's George Lucas's great weakness, <laughs> is he likes to introduce weird lizards and dinosaurs and stuff without having a clear plan for them, narratively speaking. Uh, so the questions we're left with at the end of this book about the world are like, yo, what actually is the deal with the Stone Eaters? What, what would happen if the moon came back? And on whose terms? And maybe some characters... Are stone eaters that didn't used to be, mm-hmm. uh, which is exciting. If you have favorite characters that may or may not have died over the course of this book, maybe they're stone eaters now. Uh, mm. Yeah, it's it's fun. I do think that it it does kind of suffer from the like everything is experienced through the lens of oh man, that's gonna be the next book, isn't it? Yeah, right. Which is only a it's a minor bummer in the grand scheme of things, but. Well, luckily you're going to read the next book like before too long, right? I don't think we have it like a date picked out on the schedule, but it's going to be within the next few months, right? Yeah, definitely for sure. Yeah. Um, and I'm excited to get to it because I want to know where it goes. Um, any other thoughts, Andrew? Is that it? Uh, no, I've got no more thoughts. My brain's all brained out. No thoughts. Closing up shop. No thoughts here. Closing Seats taken. time. Mm-hmm. So, our podcast is over. Thanks for thanks for, <laughs> thanks, thanks for coming. If you want to tell us about your favorite middle entries in trilogies, you can send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter at overduepod. Thanks to Anna, Psyduck, Jenna, Rebecca, Bob, Monica, Kami, Lake, Wordy, Josh, and John, and many more for talking about us on social media this week. Our theme song is by Nick Larangis. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is an internet website where you have all kinds of links and text and images and HTML all arranged in a way that conveys information to you, the reader. Uh, we have links to Apple Podcasts and Google in our RSS feed. We, have a, we are present on Spotify and Stitcher and many other podcast services. Uh, we have links to the books that we have read and are going to read. If you'd like to read along with us, click those. You get a book, we get a cut, and you support a local bookstore through bookshop.org so we can all feel good about it. Um, next week, I'm going to be reading Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie. I can't wait to find out what the Ancillary Justice is. I don't know. It's got, I think space is involved. The Yeah, the book has some kind of like 
like a top-down shooter kind of fighter gradius jet. maybe <laughs> yeah like a gradius thing going on so yeah okay tune fun, in tune in for some space invaders talk next mm-hmm. week <laughs> yeah we'll we can find video games to reference for pretty much any book i bet we could i bet we could and we usually do all right everybody thank you so much for listening until we talk to you next week try to be happy That was a HeadGum Podcast.